Now, last week, let me know we're in Proverbs chapter 29. Last week, we were in verses 5, 6, and 7. And, uh, you know, we talked about how the Bible uses the concept of flattery. And, uh, you know, we all like flattery, flattering people and all that. And I'm not, I, I, I wasn't trying to say that you shouldn't flatter people. I mean, flattery is, uh, is, but the Bible talks about that there's people who use that in the wrong way. And we saw that last week, and we talked about it, how that it can become an issue uh, when people will use it to deceive you to maybe take some kind of advantage of you. And then we, we talk about, uh, you know, pastors and, and flattery and all of that. And there's nothing wrong with telling a pastor, you know, that he did a good job. That's not what I'm talking about. It's a thing where, you know, people will will try to get something from somebody by flattering them and saying things to them. And, you know, and I told you that, you know, as a pastor, you need to preach the truth. And truth needs no flattery. It needs no propping up. I mean, you've got to be careful how you use it, grace and truth. I get all of that. But, um, you know, and we looked at three key words. And these three key words are, uh, when you find them in your Bible, you'll always want to take a closer look at the context. And the first word was the word net, like fishing net, catch something in a net. The second one was the word snare that you would set to catch some kind of animal. And then the third one was the word pit. When you find these three words in the Bible, you just want to slow up and take a closer look at the context because... uh, uh, doctrinally, in the Old Testament, you don't really find it in the New Testament, but you find it throughout the Old Testament. Those three words will be used uh, many times, and we always know that the context will be um, the Antichrist and his plan to wipe out the nation of Israel uh, during the tribulation period. So you'll want to remember that. And also, we saw how that the, uh, the wicked will always set, uh, get caught in their own trap. That's throughout the Bible, too. The trap you set from somebody else, you're going to fall into it yourself. And of course, doctrinally, we talked about how that is a <clears throat> picture of the tribulation period, how the Antichrist lures the Jew down in the wilderness and then tries to wipe him out in the Valley of Armageddon, setting a trap for them. And then, of course, second coming, he gets caught in his own trap. And I told you how that doctrinally, it's for the Jew in the, nation, in the tribulation period during the, in the nation of Israel. Inspirationally, you know, it's for you and for me in a practical way. A great verse for either... Old Testament Jew going through what he went through uh, or you and me going through what I go through is Isaiah 54, verse 17, where it talks about the protection of God in your life and my life, where he says, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee uh, in judgment thou shalt condemn. And we saw because, uh, you know, of, of God's hand of protection in our lives, we saw how that we can uh, one of the verses, sing and rejoice uh, uh, that in the victory that God has given us. And I also told you last week, you remember, that this world's in darkness. And the devil likes to put those pitfalls and those snares all through, hoping that we will fall into them, and we many times we do. But the Word of God is, is, is a light. And the Bible says, and I gave you the verse of Psalm 119, 105, that thy word is a, a, a lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. It lights the way to show you where the pitfalls are. And then also in verse 17, the great principle uh, in all we do uh, dealing with people, uh, seeing and understanding not just the condition of people that they're in, but the cause of their condition. When you want, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, when you start to deal with people, I know we want to make the condition better, but you can never deal with the condition until you understand the cause. What put them in that condition, and do they understand that? You know, I tell people all the time, you know, you have problems in your life. I have 10,000 people in this church that I can put with you that will help you. But the problem is if I had a million, unless you want to do what we tell you to do, the people aren't going to help you. You have to come to that place where you understand the cause of your condition. You know, and, uh, you know, and then I, I closed out and left you with this thought last week, which was a sobering thought. And uh, one that I've asked myself many, many times, that in your Christian life or even in this church, uh, what do we do for Christ that an unsaved man couldn't do? And, you know, and that's, uh, that's an incredible deal. Now, today we're going to look at, uh, you know, a couple of more verses here, and uh, verses 8, 9, and 10. So follow with me as we read through this, and then we will, uh, uh, we will go from there. It says, uh, scornful uh, men bring a city into a snare. 
Uh, but wise men turn away wrath. If a wise man contendeth with a foolish man, whether he rage or laugh, there is no rest. The bloodthirsty hate the upright, but the just shall seek his soul. Uh, Pastor Sean, would you stand up back there? I know you're back there someplace. Ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me. Thank you, buddy. Good job. Now, verse 8 says, Scornful men bring a city to a snare, but wise men turn away the wrath. Now, this, this is a great practical principle that I want to talk about here in a moment, uh, and it's one that you'll want to get down. I think that probably most of you uh, will understand it, uh, but we'll put it into a little better understandable context for you. But first of all, let's just like we always do, let's get the doctrinal aspect out of the way first. The scornful men here will obviously be the guys up there in verses 5 and 6 that we've already studied the last couple of weeks that will, uh, through their you know, uh, uh, personal agenda uh, and through their flattery, will destroy a city. Now, doctrinally, that city obviously will be New- with Jerusalem and the Antichrist, and that's exactly what he does. Now, historically, that will be the kings of Israel, And, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, God's city was Jerusalem. And uh, there's no question about that. And the Jews lost that back in, uh, you know, when the times of the Gentiles came in. And they're going to get it back someday. But right now, or back in the Old Testament, you know, we saw that David and Solomon were two of the greatest kings that, that Israel ever had. But after they're off the throne, we start to see historically this verse come into play. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes over the nation of Israel and he quickly, he splits the kingdom. And when he did that, he violated one of the great principles taught throughout the whole Bible about divide and conquer. And now instead of the nation being unified together, they're split apart and actually fight a number of civil wars among themselves. But it certainly weakened them that Uh, Their adversary, who wanted to destroy them anyhow, made them a lot easier. And then from that point on, uh, we have the two southern tribes, which we know as Judah, and then we have the ten northern tribes, which we know as as Israel. And each one of them, up to the captivity of Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Shennacherib in Assyria, we have 19 kings on both sides. Judah has 19 kings, and Israel has 19 kings. And this is where you begin to see this verse come into play from a historical aspect. Rehoboam is a wicked king. He sets in play the disaster that's going to unfold some three, four hundred years later. We have Jeroboam, who isn't very good, Amasa, Ahaz. All these men are wicked kings, and there's a bunch of them. I just didn't take the time this morning. And all of them become a snare to the city. Then you have some good guys. You have Asa, you have Jehoshaphat, you have Uzziah, you have Hezekiah. They turn it around and try to bring it back to God. So we see historically how that verse fits there. And then we have the ten tribes of Israel, or the northern tribes, and they have 19 kings, and they're all bad. The worst one of the bunch is Ahab, and the Bible says that he is the worst king that Israel ever had. But all of their kings uh, lead them and become a snare uh, to the city. But the wise men that we find, like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, and Hezekiah, and some of the other ones, they, they try to turn that thing back around as best that they can. And yet, we see the doctrinal and we see the historical, but uh, the inspirational is the practical for you and for me. It's, it's one of the most amazing uh, parallels. And I, 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 I talk about all the time the parallels between the Old Testament nation of Israel and what they went through, and New Testament Christianity and what we go through. We're told in the book of 1 Corinthians that the things that happened to them were for our examples and our examples. 
for our admonition. We are to learn from what happened to them. And of course, I've told you many, many times, we're not very good in America, and we're not very good in Christianity by learning from history. And when men don't learn from history, then men fail to learn it, the lessons, and they, they repeat them. So inspirationally, this verse I want to talk about for a few minutes will fit right into where you and, are at, you and I are at today in this nation, in the United States. Now let me just say this before we go any farther, so I don't want to be downline confused of, of this being a political thing. I am not political in any way, shape, or form. I think the Republicans and the Democrats are both crooks. I have no use for either one of them. I, I, don't, I don't care about the, who gets to be president. I mean, obviously, John made a good point here. John uh, um, Christensen, a couple of while back, we had a decision, and uh, we were talking about discussion on Thursday night, and he said, well, you want a president that's going to be pro the nation of Israel, 100%. I'm with you on that one. That is a great statement. John never misses the boat. That's good. You do. But bottom line is, come on. You know as well as I do that politicians will tell you whatever you want to hear to get into office. And, uh, you know, I've told you before how that our founding fathers, way back when this country was put together, they, they, they wanted it built on the Word of God. And two wise men that set this country at the beginning on the course through their preaching was George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And you don't have to, this is not some Baptist history lesson. You can go to any public library in Kansas City or any city you're living in and find this information. They literally, through their preaching, as the proverb says, they literally, through their wisdom, kept this nation on track from about 1700 by their preaching. Of course, they died long after, but about up to 1850. And today, our nation has through our cities, like verse 8 talking about, have become a snare where once we used to talk about the beautiful cities in our country and talk about the places to go on vacation and the nice places you can go to take your family. Let me tell you something. There is no safe place anywhere in America today. I'm not sure there's any safe place in the world other than being in the arms of the Lord Jesus. But I am telling you right now that this country's got some problems. And this country's got some issues. And I'm going to also tell you that uh, there isn't any form of government that's going to fix it. The Democrats aren't going to fix it. The Republicans are going to fix it. But let me tell you who is going to fix it. When the Lord comes back, he's going to fix it. And that's the government I'm looking for. See, that's the one that will get it all laid out and straightened out. But you see it all the time where we want to boast about the most beautiful city. We talk about the most friendly city, Philadelphia, a city of brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means. Now we find it all the time where we, we, we list these cities as the murder capitals of the world. <laughs> Chicago, Illinois, you'd think that was the number one murder place on the planet, but it's not. It's number 10. Number 9 is Cincinnati, Ohio. Number 8 is Atlanta, Georgia. These are the cities that have the most, these are the top 10 murderous capitals in this country by cities. Number eight is Atlanta, Georgia. Number seven is Washington, D.C. Number six is Kansas City. Yes. Right now, it's probably changed this weekend, but when I was putting this together this week, there was 145 homicides so far this year. Oakland, California is number five. Baltimore, Maryland is number four. St. Louis, Missouri, number three. Detroit, Michigan is number one and get, uh, number two. And guess who number one is? Anybody want to take a chair shot at it? Who's number one? Raytown. Raytown. <laughs> Easy now, son. You're, you're dismissed. What did you say? What did you say? Oh. Uh, New Orleans. Louisiana. You know, I remember back two or three years ago, show me, remember, remember we had some city workers? that had a, a pool you put money in, and the, you, if whoever hit, guessed the right number won the money in the pool. And what they were guessing on is by January 1, how many homicides there'd be in Kansas City. They fired them all. Yeah, they fired them all. I don't know who won the pool, but probably the mayor. But they, they fired them all. You know, and then we got about, hey, the five top drug-infested cities and, and I did a little research on this, and I broke them down into, 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 into individual drugs in case you, you know, want to specialize in your drug of choice here. Now, you wouldn't believe this. 
prescription drug abuse. The number one place is Dayton, Ohio. I would have never guessed that. Meth capital of the United States. No, 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 no. You're never going to get this one. Missoula, Montana. I'm kidding you. Heroin. Espanda, New Mexico. Crack cocaine. New Orleans again. And I got the second one for heroin. I couldn't pass it up. was Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm telling you, we wonder why we have the problems that we have. And these things have become a snare to our cities. Now let's talk about crime in the U.S. Ten top cities of crime. Well, number one, St. Louis. Number two, Detroit. Number three, Birmingham, Alabama. Number four, Memphis, Tennessee. Number five, Milwaukee. Get this one. Number six, Rockford, Illinois. Are you kidding me? Number seven is Baltimore. Number eight is Little Rock, Arkansas. Number nine is Oakland, California, and we made it. Number 10 is Kansas City. Now, see, that's the kind of attitude that you got while you're in trouble. You got there. See, you're happy about that. Shame on you. There is 17 crimes a day, in, and that seems really low to me, but I'm just, maybe that was in 1940. I don't know, but I'm telling you something. Now, this took place because evil and wicked men scorned the truth of the Word of God. They did. I haven't even talked about the school shootings yet. In the last 10 years in this country, there have been 65 school shootings where kids have been innocently killed by some idiot going in with a handgun. And the problem is that these wicked scorners, our leaders, politicians, religious leaders too, the leaders of our community, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. You took the Bible and prayer out of the school and the guns came in. And you're so stupid to see that. Ask yourself. How many school shootings did you have in America before you took the, God, the Bible and prayer out? The answer is zero. But as my faithful compadre Gary Potter always says, you can't fix stupid. I got a friend of mine who uh, got us into the jail down there, Ray Stewart, and I talked to him. Uh, he's the chaplain down there. and We were talking this week, and he said, you ain't going to believe it, Bob. He says, I've got a program down there that we get guys saved. And I want to bring these people who are low-grade offenders. When they get out, I want to get them into churches, and I want to get them into Bible study and get them into this and get them to change their lifestyle. And I have been told by the administration that no offender coming out of jail that's on probation can go to any church unless he's been court-ordered by the judge. I mean, yeah, we're going to change their world and change their life, but no, we can't do it. No, we'll just send them right back to the neighborhood, right back to the gangs, right back. And I'm telling you, it all goes back to the scorners who have become a snare to this city. Now, I'm just telling you, just being honest with you this morning, you may not like what I'm about to say, but it's okay. You got your opinion, I got mine. It's all right. But I won't be honest with you. I don't care if it's Democrats or Republicans. I've never seen nor believed any politician who ever ran on his being a Christian with Christian values. I mean, I know they say it, but I, I've just, I've never found one that I ever believe. You know why? Because I'm going to tell you something. If you really believe the Bible the way you need to believe it, you could never get elected in this country. I mean, do you get up and take your stand on homosexuality and same-sex marriages? You think you're going to get elected? You get up and you take your stand in your country meeting, your hall town meetings, you start talking about soul winning, winning people to Christ. And folks, we're glad that you're here. Hope you vote for me. But before I close, I want to let you know that if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ, your own person, you think you're going to get elected? You think you're going to get up and talk about the Roman Catholic Church or the, uh, the Muslims or the Mormons or whoever the case may be? And you're going to make your, you're going, you think you're going to get up and preach about booze and drugs? You think you're going to get up and you ever hear one get up and say, I'm going to take my stand and put the Bible and prayer back in schools? 
that you'll never get elected on that platform. I've never heard one get up and declare his position on the King James 1611 being the authorized Bible and the answer to man's problems. And if I get elected, folks, I'm going to do everything I can to get the Bible back into every family and the Bible back into our schools. You'll never get elected. Ah, but they have the key buzzword, don't they? I'm a man of faith. My faith is so important to me. Really? Yes, I am a man of faith. I have a deep personal faith. Really? In what? In what? You realize when you go to the government and they ask you to pray, they always have a pastor come in to start off a new section of Congress. And he opens the whole session in prayer. I've been asked several times and I've always been too busy taking out the trash to get there. But I'm going to tell you this. You have to have your prayer that you're going to pray for this country and our leaders submitted to somebody so he can approve your prayer. And you cannot use the word Jesus Christ. You can use the word God because God can be anything. But boy, when you say Jesus Christ, you make it real personal, you see. So you can't use that name. I've never seen a president ever won any election that ever, that ever on his inauguration ceremony ever did what Solomon did in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 8. Where he got out and he got to study it sometimes. He's praying and he's praying before the whole nation. And he starts out on his feet, but he ends on his knees with his arms wide out asking God to take care of his. Where's that at? Well, I've got faith. Faith in what? So did Karl Marx. He had faith in communism. So did Adolf Hitler. He had faith in Nazism. So did Darwin. He had faith in evolution. I mean, come on. Faith in what? Why, every atheist in this city has faith. He has faith in himself. Come on, boy. Faith in what? You're like the, you're like the alcoholic anonymous. It used to be you, you, you brought it to God. Now they took God out. It's your higher power. Your higher power can be your walnut tree in the backyard. I'm telling you, scornful men have brought the cities of this country into a snare. It's a snare of sin. It's a snare of booze. It's a snare of drugs. It's a snare of everything that is against God. But wise men take away, turn away wrath. That's God's judgment. That's, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's America. America is facing God's judgment, and you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, that's a man with the truth of God's Word who, who will declare it in his preaching. And once our founding fathers set this country on a course, God made sure that as time went on, he raised up in this country men who didn't care what anybody thought, who wasn't part of the political system in any way, shape, or form. And this, these guys have been lost today. There probably isn't a pastor in this city. Maybe there is. There certainly isn't many of God's people who know anything about these guys. And they have been lost. We talk about William Booth and his, his dealing and uh, the Salvation Army. And we, we, we use his name. But how many people really know what he did? We talk about William Chapman back around 1859 to 1918. What a great, powerful preacher he was in this country. Who knows his name today? How about Gypsy Smith, 1860 to uh, 1947? I mean, come on, man. He, he preached across this country. Harry Ironsides, one of the greatest Bible teachers for common people to learn the Bible that you'll ever find. We talk about, we talk about J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee never really, uh, he wasn't a real deep guy in the Bible, but I want to tell you something. When he died in 1988, his radio service and his material uh, through the Bible have been translated in 35 languages. You can still find him on the radio today. They got Beecham Vick from Detroit, Michigan. You got Dallas Billington from Akron, Ohio. You got Carl McIntyre, you got Hyman Appleman, you got R.A. Torrey, William Riley, George Truett. These were men who God raised up. They were wise men who, who kept this country 
focused on the morals and the values that we need to have that kept our cities becoming a snare. And they're lost today. They're lost not only by the common man. They're lost by the pastors. They're lost by the, the Christians. What they believed and what they taught was all now being lost. You have a whole young generation of preachers coming up. Hey, I deal with them every week, man. I got a Bible study tomorrow night for an hour and a half, maybe two hours with a group of guys down south someplace that got all kinds of questions about the Bible. I deal with it all the time. I see a lot of guys who know a little bit about the Bible, but they absolutely know nothing about the Bible. And they're lost to what God did down through history. They're just like Hosea said in 08.12 that the great things of God have now become strange things to our ears. And we, we go through our life and pastor churches and do what we do as Christians without any understanding of the men that took their stand to keep our cities from becoming a snare. And when they were gone, they were gone because scornful men wanted to get rid of it. I was talking to a guy <coughs> the other week. And he did not believe that the Holocaust in World War II where they murdered 8 million Jews ever took place. And there's a bunch of people out there, believe me, that, uh, that, uh, um, that do not believe that. And he argued up one side and down the other that it was all a political deal. You know, it's been 70 some years now. And, and, and it was documented and photographed by men because you know what they said? They said, we must document this because 50 years from now, they'll say it didn't happen. And that's exactly where we're at. I told him, I said, you know what? I said, you're talking to the wrong guy about that. Because uh, I've done a great exhaustive study on the Nuremberg trials. And I, you know, I, I, it was a time when I collected World War II stuff. And I actually got, believe it or not, out of Dallas, Texas, out of an estate sale, a whole grouping of stuff that belonged to a guy by the name of Colonel Roy. Colonel Roy was the commanding officer of the army that liberated Dachau. I actually had the radio broadcast from Voice of America that they did a radio deal on him and he explaining what he found when he got there. I had about 300 of his photograph, not copies someplace from a newspaper that he had personally took of train cars loaded with dead bodies and rooms loaded and the ovens with half-burned people in them. I told this guy, I said, you know what? I read the, I read the report by Godfrey Lawrence. And I said, do you know who Godfrey Lawrence was? He didn't have a clue. He got it off some Aryan Brotherhood website someplace or some white supremacist group that hates the Jews and hates the blacks and hates everybody that isn't white. And I said, well, let me illuminate you. Godfrey Lawrence was the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg. 20 years after the Nuremberg trials were over, they interviewed him about the Holocaust and they brought some of this stuff that was coming up. And you know what he said? He said, in all of the war criminals that we tried... Every one of them wanted to tell us that they were just following orders. Many of them told us that they just didn't know what was going on. Many of us told us that they felt persecution that if they didn't go along with it. But he said, you know what? Not one person ever said it didn't happen. And that's the way it is with these great men of God. Christians today have lost their heritage They've lost the fact that when God started this country, he bet it on the Word of God, a King James Bible, and then he put men down through history up to about 1850 and up into the, in the early 20th centuries that kept our cities from becoming a snare, but it was the scornful men that took it out. Men like Ira Sankley, men like Oswald J. Smith, men like Dwight Talmadge, James Taylor. I've told you the story many times about D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody lived from 1837 to 1899. And he, he, he's the only man uh, outside of maybe George Whitfield that ever rocked two continents for the Lord. Boy, he was something else. He established Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. 
and he preached there and held great Bible conferences in that city. And I want to tell you something. When Moody preached on Sunday, on Monday morning, every major newspaper in America printed his sermons word for word. Years after he died, Chicago fell into the trouble that it got into in the, in the 20s and the 30s with the gangsters and the bootleggers and all of those things. The murder, the crime, and the drugs. In the Chicago Times, a reporter put in the Chicago Times, he put a picture of Chicago. And over interface at Chicago was interfaced a shadow of a, a man, looked like Moody. And he wrote underneath, Chicago desperately needs another Moody. Little side note. Moody came over and got a job in his, he wasn't saved, he came over and got a job in his uncle's shoe store in Chicago. He's a shoe salesman. He started going to a little church and going to a Bible study. <clears throat> Everybody knows about the great Moody, and he was a tremendous preacher and all the things that he did, but nobody knows about Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. And Edward Kimball, on Saturday, April 21st, 1855, walked into that shoe store and talked to him, took him in the back, and won him to Christ. I say that to say this. You never know what God's going to do with the people you're working with. You never know what God's going to do with the people that you're teaching the Bible to. I, when I try to teach the Bible, I, I, I don't have any limitations to it. I, I, I'm full bore all the way. I just, you know, I put everything I have and everything I do when it comes to teaching people the Bible, whether it's one-on-one or here this morning or Thursday night Bible study institute or people ministry or whatever. You know why? Because you never know what God's going to take and God's going to do to the people you're talking to. And the Bible says, wise men turn away wrath. I think of Billy Sunday, 1862 to 1935. He was a ball player. Single-handedly brought in prohibition through the preaching across this country. He brought in prohibition, and prohibition for you unlearned young kids was the fact that this country didn't have any booze in it. It was against the law. And prohibition came in in 1920, and it lasted to 1933 when the scornful men overturned it. Thirteen years of no booze in this country. All because of one man with a King James Bible got up and preached the sin and the ills of liquor. And he was something else. He was something else. He was hated so much by the scornful crowd that maybe you saw the movie sometime in the history called Elmer Gantry. The lead part was played by uh, um, Burt Lancaster. Elmer Gantry was made by C.S. Lewis, C.S. Uh, C.L. Lewis, and C.L. Lewis or C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a movie producer. He hated Billy Sunday so bad that he produced a movie called Elmer Gantry about a fornicating, drunken slug of a preacher, evangelist, who uh, was, was as crooked as you could ever be and made it right in the time when Billy Sunday, obviously, to put the, put the damper on his ministry. Of course, he didn't do it. Billy Sunday prints against drinking. There was no social drinking in his services. He was a preacher against drinking. He put it where it was, in the pit of hell. Now, we must understand, and here's my point, most Baptist churches and certainly neo-evangelical churches would have to protest his preaching today because they all go along with social drinking. You see? Now let me ask you a question. When Billy Sunday died, he laid in body in state in, in Madison Square Garden. A New York Times reporter covered his funeral and he stood there for two days and watched people file by out. And he said it was amazing. He said almost everybody mumbled to themselves that that man saved my marriage, that man saved my family, that man saved my life. I'd be in hell today if it wasn't for his preaching. Two million people. But you see, you Baptist preachers out there today, you neo-evangelical guys that like to get in your pulpit and say it's okay to drink, you disagree with what he said. Oh, I'm telling you, you know why? Because you forgot. You forgot what God has done down through this country. Down in Nashville, Tennessee, Ryman Auditorium, home of the Grand Old Opry. Whoever knew that the 
Ryman Auditorium was built by Thomas Ryman in 1890 who heard the evangelist Sam Jones preach. He got saved and he built Ryman Auditorium and from 1890 to 1934 it was a place where the gospel was preached, the Bible was preached. Literally hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ in Ryman Auditorium. Who knows that today? Where it once was Sam Jones, now it's little Jimmy Dickens. Where it once was Sam Jones preaching the Word of God and Iris Sankry getting up and leading the singing, now it's Tammy Wynette. Hey, what happened? Why don't we know those things? Why did we have to replace just as I am without one plea? Sound the battle cry, amazing grace. Why did we have to replace that with Put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone. <laughs> what happened to the great power and the preaching of the Word of God and the singing you got praised with? Your cheating heart. Amen. Are you kidding me? What happened to... Have thine own way, Lord, to send me the pillow that you dream on. Whatever happened to stand up for Jesus to stand by your man. Whatever happened to the great spiritual saw, how did they get replaced? Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican gal. You kidding me? What happened to that? How did the how did the great songs of the faith get replaced with a country oh man? What happened? How did the grand old book get replaced with a grand old opry? I'll tell you why. Men who were scorners against the truth. We go down to the city and the mission down there, and the boys preach down there. Most people don't even know. I made a reference to it last week that, you know, the City Union Mission got started in 1924 with an evangelist named David Berkeley. He was holding revival services and the head prostitute, head mama in the town here had her in a house of prostitution. Her name was Anna Chambers. She went to one of his services and got saved, turned her whole life around, gave everything she had for a home for her girls to get them saved and it turned into City Union Mission. See, and this country is in the sad shape that it's in today, not because of the wicked unsaved or wicked politicians, Democrats or Republicans. No, no. This country's in the sad state of affairs because of the wicked preachers who will not stand in their pulpit and preach the truth. That's the problem. We got a big thing going now. We want to we want to impeach the president. Forget impeaching the president. Just start impeaching pastors. I mean, I'm not interested in the president. He's just a temporary occupant of a White House. You want, to make some, you want to make some changes? Start impeaching preachers in their churches where they don't preach the Bible. Get some people to stand up and say, you know what? You can't stay here if you're not going to preach the truth. Never happened. Verse 9 says, If a wise man contendeth with a foolish man, whether he rage or laugh, there is no rest. Now this verse will give us a, a good insight into, into dealing with people. You know, the book of Proverbs is about a wise man and a foolish man. And you can go through that whole thing. You know, in the book of Proverbs, it defines what a wise man is. There's nine principles in there that tell you what a wise man is. Nine being the number of fruit bearing in the Bible, and, you know, he's going to be fruitful. There's eight principles in there that tells you what a fool is. You want to know what a wise man is? Look at those nine things and find out if he lines up. You want to know what a fool is? Learn those eight things. It's not hard. But you'll find that there's saved fools and there's lost fools. And the verse is saying a real fool that you have to deal with uh, that's a 100% bona fide fool defined by the Bible, you'll not win him over. And every child of God, as you grow in the Word of God and get to the point where you maybe work with people and get to the next couple of levels, you need to have the ability and time to be able to spot a real fool. You got to know what to look for. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 comes to our rescue again. 
where it says, Answer not a fool according to his father, lest to be, uh, be also like unto him. That's a good verse. But then the next one seems to be a contradiction. Where the one first four said, Answer not a fool. Verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest be wise in his own conceits. We look at that and we say, Oh, that doesn't make sense. It must be a contradiction. No, he's telling you there's two kinds of fools. There are some fools that you don't give an answer to because they're not looking for an answer. I have people all the time want to get into a discussion or this or that about something in the Bible that, you know, I'm not interested in talking to you about it. You know why? Because you're a bona fide fool and ain't going to do nothing but waste my time. And I, maybe when I was younger in life and I was stupid, I, I thought there was some kind of challenge in people like you. Not anymore. You're a waste of time. And I have learned this. Most guys who teach heresy want to debate somebody that, that is got some credibility so they can give some credibility to their heresy. So you deny them that. You answer not a fool. Look what it says, according to his life, lest thou also be like unto him. You're, you, don't, you don't understand what you're dealing with. Now, there are people who are fools who, who are fools who are trying to learn. A fool is not a bad term, and we always use it that way, but you have a fool who is unteachable. But then you have a fool, somebody that has been fooled by not getting the truth that wants to learn. Those are the ones you answer. Those are the ones you answer. There's a guy on our Thursday night Bible study who, who pumps in questions all the time. And, uh, you know, he has no, no, I always know by the questions that Aaron gives me when they come in. I always know who it's his. This guy has no clue of anything in the Bible, and you're never going to change anything. that He, he believes some of the most whacked out stuff you ever get in the planet. So I answer his questions because I answer them because they're an audience there, but I never miss an opportunity to whack him. Now, I'm going to give you four great principles in dealing with fools. I saw that the wives went right to their notebooks on this one. <laughs> Not a good sign, guys, I'm just telling you. Now, a wise man is defined in, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 30, that's one of the nine, as a soul winner. He that winneth souls is wise. And as a soul winner, as a wise man, you'll have to contend with some uh, things as you try to win them to Christ. The word contend goes along with the word contention. There's going to be some contention. And, of course, you're going to have to understand that. The example of this would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 where Paul is dealing with the fools in Corinth, and he's dealing with the very same thing that I'm talking about. He's trying to get them back on track when they're fighting him every inch of the way. And you're going to find some people who, when you start to deal with them, uh, when they're a bona fide fool, uh, you must realize that, uh, you know, you're going to have to contend with some things. And there may come a point where you said, hey, you know what, this isn't going anywhere. The second thing is, as many times the man witnessed to will hate the person who's witnessing to him. Uh, But the soul winner is out to get the man's soul. So he doesn't take any abuse personally. You focus on the cause, not the condition. And you realize that uh, you get into the business of winning people to Christ, you're going to get some adverse situations you're going to find yourself in. And you're going to get some people who not only hate the message, but they hate the messenger. And you've got to learn to deal with that. You start taking that personal, and you'll quit soul winning, and you'll get your brain beat out you realize that that comes with the territory. You're supposed to be smarter than the problem. You're supposed to be the wise man over the foolish man. Again, you'll find in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27, Paul in dealing with the abuse of fools trying to give him a hard time when he's trying to give them the truth. The real soul winner, the wise man, will use God's wisdom <clears throat> to understand who and what he's dealing with to avoid needless arguments that will waste his time and will go nowhere. I'm only interested in helping people who want to grow. I'm not interested in arguing with somebody who already believes what they want to believe. There's no profit in that. I already know you're such a fool that nobody's going to change your mind. So why even bother with it? I got, why would I waste time with you when I got two or three other people in this church that want to learn the Bible that I could be talking to and dealing with? So you avoid these situations. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.16, but shun uh, profane and vain babbling, for they will increase... Uh, into more ungodliness. 
He says in 1 Timothy 6.21, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. They get caught up in these things. 1 Timothy 1.4, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, uh, which is in, uh, in faith, so do. So Paul tells us, you know, that you've you got to be able to discern what a fool is. Now, let me just say this about heresies. Heresies are, are come in two flavors. You have heresies of unsaved people without the body of Christ. Then you have heresies that with saved people that are in the body of Christ. And there'll be two different kinds of heresies that you have to deal with. You have saved people who get messed up in all kinds of heresy. And you have unsaved people who do the same thing. And of course, you know, the Bible tells us, and here again, this is the definitive verse on it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. Paul says, For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may uh, be made manifest among you. Now that's a great verse. Now that verse shows you the importance of heresies, whether they're in the body of Christ or out. Because anybody, anybody who's teaching heresy will have to go up against established truth. I mean, I don't care what you want to teach. If it isn't right with the Bible, you're gonna, it, you, you, you build your Bible teaching and you build your Bible knowledge on established truth. Don't ever teach anything that you can't go to the Bible and get a definitive verse on. And when you do, or several... And when you do, then you're just making it up as you go along. That's how, heresies, that's how heresies exist. You get a guy that comes up with some goofy idea about this and that, he couldn't go to the Bible to prove it if his life depended on it. In fact, everything in the Bible just takes him the other direction. So that's the way it works. So what they're saying here is there's established truth in a person's life. What the heresy does is point toward the truth. And that's why you need them. Because anybody with any knowledge in the Bible can spot a heresy just like that, if you know your Bible. Somebody comes up and starts teaching you something, saved or lost, starts to teach you something that's not found in the Bible, that's a Baptist doctrine or whatever doctrine, and your Bible clearly goes the other way, man, you, you got it. I had a guy one time, he was arguing the fact that in Genesis chapter 6, it was it talked about in the sons of God saw the daughters of men and, and uh, you know, uh, went into them and strange flesh and all that stuff. And he was just dead serious that that wasn't fallen angels. And he said, well, that is, he says, that, that's not fallen angels. And I, I didn't even try to go back over to the, at least 30 verses that I could show him that it was. Because I was dealing with a real fool. So I wasn't, so all I wanted to do was throw a little gasoline on his tail and throw a match to it. So I didn't worry about giving him any truth because he wasn't looking for truth. Then he went on and on and on how that, he said, no, he says, uh, he says no, that is, that is, those sons of God are saved people marrying unsaved people. Well, my first question to him, well, I only had three questions. My first question was, then how did that produce a race of giants? Yeah, it was just that quiet. And my second, my second question, well, he said that it was the godly line of Seth. So my next thing is I threw in my Bible and told him to trace for me the godly line of Seth. I can, draw, I can trace for you the Messianic line. I can trace for you the kingly line. I can trace for you David's line. I can trace you for Christ's line. Did you ever see the godly line of Seth? Nowhere. And if there was a godly line of Seth, did you ever see the characters that are in it? There wasn't too godly about them. No answer to that one. And then my, my big question I asked him is, okay, okay, let's take, for instance, that they were saved people marrying unsaved people. Let me ask you a question. How come all these saved people didn't get on the ark? Yeah, it was just that quiet. You see, when you teach heresy, you have to step outside the Bible, and anybody who knows the Bible will burn you. Because when you teach heresy, you've got to leave a lot of things flapping in the wind, and all somebody has to do is know those, where those flappers are, and you're in trouble. Because you can't get around. And that's why the Bible says heresy will always go against established truth. And established truth will prove who's right and who's not, because established truth is in the Bible. Your heresy isn't. Now, the fourth thing is that the fool will never have any rest because he'll, he'll, he'll never really come to the only one who can give him that rest. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He can't get past himself. I mean, you know, because a fool, and you see it all the time, a fool is somebody who is never wrong. You know, you'll learn to spot a real fool 100% of the time. You learn those eight things in Proverbs and just look for that in people, and boy, I'll tell you what. And not everybody will have them all, but I'll tell you, you start getting three or four or five down, you're doing pretty good. 
And you want to remember this. A, a, a wise man talks because he has something to say. A fool talks because he needs to say something. And boy, that is so true. That it all goes back to established truth. Now, verse 10 says, The bloodthirsty hate the upright, but the just seek his soul. Boy, now this is a fitting verse for our chapter so far, and it's a great verse for just about everything that we do in life and in the ministry. You know, and the greatest example of this would be found in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, uh, the book of Romans, he goes through chapter by chapter laying out the doctrine of what the church should believe and what it should teach. It's just an incredible book. And when you get to chapter 9, he shows us why Israel is in the state that they're in. And when he gets in chapter 11, he shows Israel is going to be restored someday. And then he gives us, as the church, our understanding of how we should view the nation of Israel in the church age. And he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he says, you would not be ignorant of this, brethren, and most of God's people are ignorant. In fact, there's seven things in the Bible we are told not to be ignorant of as Christians. And I guarantee you, when you, if I would give them to you, they would be the number seven things everybody's ignorant of. And he says here, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Then he says in verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. The nation of Israel, Jews, re- reject the gospel. And many of them look at Christianity as, as an enemy. Not everybody, but many of them do. And it doesn't matter whether they do or don't. What he's saying here, you know, but touching the election, they are the beloved of the Father's sake. The nation of Israel are still God's people. They're still God's chosen people. And God's going to deal with them in his own time. In other words, they may be my enemies for the gospel, but make sure that I don't make them my enemy. Because you understand what God's doing with them. And just like the Jew, that works with the people that you try to witness to that are, that are going to hate you. You know, they, they, will, they will persecute you for Christ's sake. And I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're going to ever take your stand for the Lord and do something, I mean, many of you hope not, but some of you maybe, you'll never get to that level. You'll just stay nice where you don't ruffle anybody's feathers and you'll just be a nice little person all your life and get along with everybody. God bless you. But I'm going to tell you something. If you're going to take your stand, you're going to cause, you're going to cause some ripples in this world. And they'll persecute you. And the only way that you can do that is you never take it personal. And how do you never take it personal? Because you stay focused on what God has called you to do. And you do that by understanding who they are. Why they do the things that they do. Why they say the things that they say. Verse 7, last week we talked about you must understand the cause. What causes people like that to do what they do before you can ever understand their condition. You know, uh, there's a great example of this in Second Kings chapter 4. I may have preached on it here. I, I preached it at Bible conferences before over the years. But it's a story of, of the Shumanite woman. She's not named. She's just given her nationality. And I found over the years that when you read a story in the Bible where it doesn't give you the person's name, it just gives you a general thing like a great woman or the Shumanite woman. But the reason he does that is because he's trying to make an application for everybody. So basically, you could put yourself into that person's name. And in the story there, she, she finally has a boy. And that boy is the love of her life. And that boy grows up. And then the Bible says that suddenly something happens. It doesn't tell us what it is, but the boy dies. And uh, what takes place then is that she knows that Elijah is the prophet of God, and she knows and heard all about what God can do. So she, she tries to get Elijah to come and, and bring life back to her boy. And as the story goes on, Elijah shows up, and, 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 and it, it all happens. And that's the way you read the story in the Bible. But I want to talk to you for just a moment, and I want to show you one of the greatest stories and pictures in the Bible of you and I doing the work of the Lord in ministering to people and being a soul winner. Now let's talk about the dead boy first. That boy is dead. And the Bible says that unsaved people are dead in trespasses of sin. That boy is a picture of an unsaved person. That boy is dead. And nothing's going to bring him back. And the only one who has the ability to bring him back is God. 
And I want to tell you something. If, uh, if you're unsaved here this morning or somebody you're working with is unsaved, uh, all you can do is point him to God because he's the only one that can give him, give him eternal life. But I want you to notice some things. This, the mom here, she sees the boys dead and she has a desperate need to get Elijah, the man of God, to the dead boy. And when you look at that story, I want you to listen to me. Sometimes in dealing with people, with a saved person that's going to do the ministering and an unsaved person, God will use an intermediate person to bring that unsaved person or the dead person to the man of God. And that's the mom. So she sends a servant out to, to the man of God. And this is the great principle. And the man of God at first he says, oh, okay, so he sends one of his servants back to the house to get the dead guy back to life. And you know what? He can't do it. It won't work. Now, that's a tremendous principle. I'm going to tell you what that principle is, and you better listen to me. You can't send somebody else to do what God has called you to do. If God's called you to be a soul winner and saved you to be what God... You can't send somebody else to do that if God's called you to do it. It didn't work. Finally, the man of God shows up. <coughs> and in verse 32, it says that he knelt down and prayed, and that's another great principle. Let me tell you something. If God isn't in what you're trying to do for him, you're wasting your time. And then a strange thing. <laughs> strange thing. He goes up to this room where this dead kid is. And the Bible says that he crawls on top of him, and he puts his mouth to his mouth, his eyes to his eyes, and his hands to him. Now, who in the world has read that story sometime and asked yourself, what in the world is going on here? Now, I, 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 if I can just be candid with you for a moment, and I don't know what candid means, but I heard a guy use it on TV last night, so I thought it would probably fit in here someplace. That's pretty repulsive to me. The idea of crawling on somebody, a male, and putting my mouth on his mouth and my eyes and his eyes and my hands and his hands, I, that, that just doesn't do a lot for me. <laughs> and I can see most of you are glad that it doesn't, so that's a good deal. <laughs> but I am telling you, this man of God is going to minister to this person. You know what that tells me? As repulsive as that is, I want to tell you something. In dealing with people, there are some repulsive things you're going to have to deal with. The people you deal with aren't going to be all squeaky clean like you'd like them to be. They're not going to have all their vocabulary down. They're not going to have everything the way that they need to be. They're not going to be that way. Um, every once in a while, you may get an apple fall off the tree and hit you on the head that's right there. That's happened to me, but boy, most of them don't come that way. Most of them, you got to, you got to, boy, you got to, you got to, it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world. I have had to sit there sometimes, and while they were telling about their life and the things they were into and anything to do, I wanted to go, nya, 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 not even hear it. There's some repulsive things that you have to deal with when you deal with people. And then as I looked at that, I thought to myself, <coughs> once he did that, <coughs> the boy became alive. And then I, I saw the great picture here. Once I saw this boy as a picture of, of dead people, unsaved, and once I saw that the man of God is the only one that had the answer to it, and once I saw and understood that I, I couldn't send a replacement for what God wanted me to do. You know what? In our lives as Christians, you realize that giving will not replace living? You realize that Praying will be no excuse for staying. And you know that knowing will be of no excuse for not going. If God's called you to do something, you cannot send somebody else in your place. Once I saw that, I realized. Once I saw when he crawled on top of this kid and he put his mouth to his mouth and his eyes to his eyes and his hands to his hand, I saw immediately when I put it into the context the great picture of what Soul winning it really is and the key to it. He put his mouth to his mouth. 
You have to understand why unsaved people say the things the way they say it for you to be effective in dealing with them. Eyes to eyes. You have to understand why unsaved people look at things the way that they do that are so different in the way that we look at them. Hand to hand. You have to understand why an unsaved person does the things that they do that we don't do anymore. That's understanding the cause. And Elijah, by doing what he did, as repulsive as it was, it lays out everything in the perfect picture of reaching out and being a soul winning, soul winner to, to change people's lives. You have to understand why they say the things that they say. You have to understand why they look at things the way that they look at it. You have to understand why they do the things that they do. Because the wise man will go after his soul. In spite of the scorning, in spite of the rebuke, I know the fact that that man, no matter what he says, because I'm smarter than the problem, no matter what he says, no matter what he rejects, there's no rest in his life. And the front that many people put up falls apart in the lonely hours when the Holy Spirit of God tells them that their life is empty. And your job and my job is to understand that and realize that there's going to be scorners and scorners have brought this country. And I, I, I'm not in any illusion that I can change anything at this point. It's not going to change. It's, it's on its way over. But the only thing I can change is, is right here. I can change here with the little tentacles that God allows us to put out. Our, our guys around the world that are watching even this morning, it will be almost, almost a thousand people watching uh, and studying every week with us. Uh, th- I, that's all I can affect and let God do what he needs to do. We were down at that old folks retirement home Friday night. There's probably people in there that have been in there for 10, 15, 20 years and nobody's ever came to visit them. And your little act of kindness of showing them and bringing some cookies down and, and being there and your singing and your songs, their eyes lit up when the young kids sang. You see, those are things we can do. My job is to take every young man and young lady, mom or dad, whoever it may be, that wants to get to that level where you can do what God has called you to do and prepare you. We don't do it halfway here. We do it by the book. We throw out a lot of things that I grew up with in my life that were the most worthless things that I was taught that never worked because they had nothing to do with the Bible. And we found the truth of God's Word in everything we do based on that book because that's the only way to do it. Your job and my job? Giving life to dead people. People who are dead in trespasses of sin. And then taking their lives and establishing truth in their life that for the first time in their life I, I tell people all the time that come in and I work with them and you know we get a plan together to help them and do everything that needs to be done and, and you know I tell them at the end I said you know what you're at a place now where you never have to make another decision by yourself if, unless you just want to you always now if you don't know what to do with it from the Bible you always have people you can call and we'll sit down in the scriptures and show you exactly the right choice you need to make based on the Bible not what we think or even the Baptist thing what the Bible says the only rest that's going to come into our life is going to be the rest through the peace that passes all understanding that keeps our hearts and mind because our minds were stayed on Christ and his word giving life to dead people New Year's Eve all you all got friends that probably are lost that maybe got nothing to do you could bring. You be that intermediate factor, you see. You be the person that brought that person to where the man of God gave them the truth that they got the darkness of the depths of their sin out of the darkness into the light of the Word of God. That's what we do. I, I met with Larry this morning and you know, Larry owns the building and everything. We had a great time this morning. He loves this church. I mean, he just loves this church. He says, you know what? He's like 86, you know. He says, you know what, Bob? He, he almost broke down and cried. And he says, you know what, Bob? He says, I drive by here every time, and it just warms my heart, all the cars that are here. He says, this is great. This is absolutely great. 
And I'll tell you, he is moved, and there's been nobody that's been better to us than Larry. And he loves this church. He, loves, he says, you've got some great people. And I said, yeah, I do, Larry. We really do. And he said, he said you know, he says, he, he laughed. He says, you know, he says, he said, I never understood for, for years and years and years you were here and you never had a sign. He says, in fact, I put the sign up for you. I asked you a couple times if you wanted me to put a sign up, and you said no. He says, we got businesses that go out of business because they don't have a good place for a sign to be up, and people don't know they're here. He says, but you never cared about a sign. And I said, I put my, my arm on his knee, and I said, Larry, I said, that's not exactly true. I said, I did care about signs. I said, but I wasn't caring about a sign we put up here. I told my people that you be the sign for this church. You go out and bring them in. You be what Old Path Baptist Church is. You be the sign. You see, if I put a sign up there, put this one up there, it goes nowhere. When you leave here, you're going everywhere. I'd rather have 300 mobile signs than one fixed sign up there. And it's all about giving life back to dead people, giving them the truth, being there for them, not just getting them saved and slapping them on the back and saying your problems are over, because you know they're not. Their problem may be over eternally, but they got problems they got to deal with. They got marriages they got to heal. They got families they got to fix. They got their own struggles they got to go through with. And that's where we come in, of taking them to the next step and the next level, giving them what the Word of God says. And this coming, this coming next couple of weeks, Christmas after Christmas into the New Year's. It's a great time with all the things we're going to do, Ohio State game, going down to the, where we're going down to Crown Center, all the things that we're going to do, you can invite somebody that has nowhere to go. And then New Year's Eve, bring them here. Let them hear the word of God being preached. The whole path boys will do a great job. Our, our people are going to sing and play their instruments. We'll do a great job. And it, it'll be a great time. We'll give them a good meal. I always like to feed you good first before I slap you. I won't be doing the slapping that night. There'll be some slapping going on, I'll tell you. But anyway, that's our word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Thank you for being here today. You guys have a wonderful Merry Christmas. I love you all very much. I thank you for all that you do for us in the church here.